Now listen to him as you move to chapter 30. He still had an eye trouble. But now they that are younger than I have me in derision, whose fathers I would have disdained to have set with the dogs of my flock. He said, that's the way it used to be. But now, why, he said, these young scoundrels come around, throw rocks at me. They have no use for me. And he says, why, the fathers of these kids, I wouldn't have even hired them to watch over my flocks. Verse 2, Yea, whereto might the strength of their hands profit me, in whom old age was perished. For want and famine, they were solitary. Now he begins to tell about his present condition. Listen to him, and I'll drop down now and hit high points in this chapter. Verse 9, And now am I their song, yea, I am their byword. In other words, they are making up now dirty little ditties about him, and they ridicule him in song. And he says, They abhor me, they flee far from me, and spare not to spit in my face. Because he hath loosed my cord and afflicted me, they have also let loose the bridle before me. Upon my right hand rise the youth. They push away my feet, and they raise up against me the ways of their destruction. He knew what it was to have a protest movement led by the college group against him. This poor man Job is in a bad way. Now he describes his condition. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm tired of listening to him boasting, and now he's courting sympathy. He's playing upon the sympathy of it. He said, look at me now. Look at the condition. I was such a great fellow. And who's to blame, by the way, friend? Well, God's to blame. Oh, there are a lot of Christians in that same position today, blaming God, really. And they can do it in a very pious way. They can say, oh, I had... All these things, I did that, but look at me now. Well, had it ever occurred that the things happen to you not because God's not good, because God's good, but that there might be something God is doing in your life. And so this man finally, in verse 31, he says this, "'My harp also is turned to mourning, and my organ into the voice of them that weep.'" Now, his harp was his singing voice. He says, I can't sing anything now but the desert blues. And he's playing the blues now. And my organ, that's his talking voice. He says, all I can do is weep. He says, I got a tear in my voice all the time. That's my condition right now. And he's really playing upon our sympathy. And I sympathize with him. But I think he's got a bad case of eye trouble, friends. There's no brokenness of spirit here. Now, friends, we're coming here to the book of Job from here on out, to that which is obviously the most important part of the book. And I trust you'll remember me in prayer that I might be able to give what is on my heart to give in this section. Great truths that are here that somehow or another it's difficult to lift them out. And these are great truths that are needed today. Now, we are in this last section here. You will recall that we've had a real slugging match. It's been, for the 
people in that day more exciting than a boxing match would be today. And these three friends of Job, they lined up against him, and they have really been coming at him. They've attempted to beat him down and make him admit that he's a great sinner, he's committed some great sin. They all approach the problem from a different viewpoint, but they all come to the same conclusion, that Job is a hypocrite, that he's hiding some great sin. And their logic is boiled down to this, that God would not punish anyone as this man Job is being punished. God wouldn't permit it to take place unless the man had committed some great sin. And so it's just as simple as that, and yet as complicated as that, and they're saying to Job, out with it. Well, obviously they have given up. The very fact that the last man, Zophar, didn't answer is, I think, evident that he didn't take his place. So, as a result, Job just continues to speak. And you have a lengthy discourse here, and believe me, they teed him off, and he comes out of his corner fighting, let me tell you. And he comes out defending himself. And the very moment that he defended himself, of course, he accused God. And it boils itself down to that. He is saying that God is wrong in this matter. And I suppose that probably the most foolish thing that any person can do is to justify himself inasmuch as God must impute sin. At the very minute that you begin to justify yourself, God immediately will have to point the finger at you and say to you what you are. And real wisdom and the correct position is to condemn ourselves utterly and cast ourselves upon God. And when we do that, God becomes our justifier. And there is nothing but wrath for the self-righteous. And there's nothing but grace for the self-judge. And this is something that is very important. Now, Job, as we saw in chapter 29, 52 times, he uses the personal pronoun, I, I. He's got eye trouble, a bad case of perpendicular aetis. Now, through chapter 31... Over a hundred times he uses this. And there's one thing we can say about the man. He lacks a certain amount of humility, of humbleness. There's no brokenness of spirit here. These friends didn't break him down. And a great many folk have come to the book of Job, and they've congratulated him and patted him on the back and said, My, he stood the test. Well, my friend, what test did he stand? He defended himself, but there's no brokenness of spirit, and therefore the friends never helped him at all. Humility is something today that we do admire in others. I read several years ago this statement, and I took the clipping out of the paper of a columnist, and his headline was this. He writes for the New York Times, he says, Powell, Alley, break the faith, baby. And let me just give you an excerpt from the article. And it reveals something that 
even today, the man in the world looks upon. It says, and I'm reading now, perhaps Adam Clayton Powell's most damaging weakness is his inability to assume the humble manner. The distinguished heavyweight, Muhammad Ali, suffers from the same defect. Ability to wear the trappings of humility is an occupational requirement in certain lines of work, particularly in politics and championship boxing. And he who scorns them invites the vengeance of an outraged public. Now, let me drop down and lift out another paragraph. It says, in the same way, Ali might have avoided public demands for his drafting by ceasing to dilate upon his physical superiority. We like our champions humble. After they have flattened some poor gaffer for our amusement, we want them to come to the microphone like Joe Lewis and Rocky Marciana and say he put up a good fight. Ali outrages us by coming to the microphone and calling a bum a bum. (laughs) May I say to you, that is a characteristic of human nature today, to be proud. And these two men just don't happen to be the only ones guilty of it. They may be a little bit more brazen about it, but that is something that characterizes the human family. Is this matter of pride? this matter of exalting oneself. And so we find this man Job here. And God here wants us when we come to him, and this book reveals that, he wants us to be real before him. And we can't put up a defense for ourselves. And it's no possible use to try to build up ourselves as if we are some great person or we've done some great thing. For nothing is sure than that everything of that kind must be broken up. The day of the Lord will be against everything high and lifted up. And it is wisdom for us to take the low and broken place. It's the low place that we get our best view of God, by the way, and his salvation. There is a great deal of this coming forward that never leads to real salvation because of the fact that we come in pride. And that is, I think, probably one of the greatest sins of the present hour. And my friend, that was the problem with this man Job. You and I, we can improve ourselves by trying to lower God's standard or to make out as if he's satisfied with us. And we are in danger if we try to believe that. We need to humble ourselves in view of our failure, but we are to hold on to the great truth of God. Now, we are going to see that in a very special way, that It's the broken and the contrite spirit that God wants on the part of those that are his own. Job justified himself instead of justifying God. And these friends, they condemned Job for that. But they didn't lead him to condemn himself. And this is something important. 
important, I think, for us to see that we must justify God. Paul said, is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. And only when we take the place of an omel and a contrite spirit. I wonder if you've ever noted in the Word of God the references that we have to this matter of being contrite and how God approves of it. Listen to Psalm 34, verse 18. The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and saveth such as be of a contrite spirit. You see, that is repentance. That is what real repentance is. When you and I come to that position, and we need to recognize as David recognized in that great penitential psalm when he made his confession. He says in Psalm 51, 17, "...the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise." My friend, you don't come to God to do business with him. You don't come to God to trade with him on equal terms and turn in your little goodness to him. And we need to recognize today that it's this matter of contrition, and you find all the way through. Now, Isaiah, in Isaiah 57, verse 15, he says, "...for thus saith a high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy." I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Now, this matter of being humble and contrite is not only a problem for the politician and the boxer. It's a problem today for those that are in the Lord's service, and for believers, egotism and self-conceit, they are more detestable when it shows itself in the service of the Lord Jesus Christ, who made himself of no reputation, and he was humble. Now, how unlike him to see pride today in the lives of those that name his name and say they're believers. Now, the thing is that to reveal today a hateful, unsubdued, self-displayed Christian profession and Christian service. Oh, I tell you, it is something today that is atrocious. And in this section here, I don't think Job looks very attractive. Now, let's listen, actually, to his final discourse here He'll have another, but he's going to change his tune after this one. Now, I have said all of this preliminary to chapter 31. Now, what we have in chapter 31, he's really patting himself on the back. He continues to do that. And what he's saying here is that he's not guilty of the common, ordinary, sensual sins, but that he's been a Pretty good fella. Now, notice what he says, beginning with verse 1. He said, I made a covenant with mine eyes, 
Why then should I think upon a maid? Now, he makes it very clear that he had lived a clean life. He didn't run around and chase women. He'd not been guilty of that. And he says, For what portion of God is there from above, and what inheritance of the Almighty from on high is not destruction to the wicked, and a strange punishment to the workers of iniquity? Now, he's still pointing his finger to others who commit these things. And he says they're to be judged. But here he stands in judgment. And he just can't quite see why it should come to him. He's such a wonderful fellow. And he's about to break his arm, patting himself on the back here. Now notice, he says, "...doth not he see my ways and count all my steps? If I have walked with vanity, or if my foot hath hasted to deceit, let me be weighed in an even balance that God may know mine integrity." And he's boasting of his integrity. Well, he's going to come in the presence of God before the book is over, and he's going to see himself. And when he sees himself, he won't see much integrity. Will you listen? If my step hath turned out of the way, mine heart walked after mine eyes, and if any blot hath cleaved to mine hands, then let me sow, and let another eat. Yea, let my offspring be rooted out. Job says... Why, if I've lived like some others have lived, I haven't lived in sin. And yet here's this man, proud as he can be. If mine heart have been deceived by a woman, or if I've laid wait at my neighbor's door, then let my wife grind unto another. Let others bow down upon her. In other words, why, he says, why, if I've done this, then let my wife be taken. If I have been unfaithful and untrue. And I take it that all the things Job is saying about himself are accurate, except he has that blind spot. And that blind spot is these things have led him to defend himself before his friends, and he just can't let up. He must boast about himself. Now, there are Christians like that today. And I personally think that to see a child of God boasting and living in pride today before others? My friend, it's as bad as if he'd gone out with a gun and murdered someone. It, I think, is lots worse than if he got drunk. This thing today of pride among Christians. And that's one of the things that makes our churches so cold. We got saints sitting there that I want to tell you why they think they're all right. Now, my friend, if you're in Christ, you're saved. But your life today doesn't, I don't care who you are, your life is not measuring up to God's standard at all. Now, let me just hit some high points here. Verse 13, he says, "...if I did despise the cause of my manservant or my maidservant when they contended with me." In other words, he says, "...I was a capitalist, and I was good to labor." And there are not too many that can say that. And, of course, the shoe's on the other foot today, and labor's not being too nice to those of us that are the consumers either. But the point is, friends, that Job could say that he had been considerate of others. Now, he says, verse 16, "...if I have withheld the poor from their desire, or have caused the eyes of the widow to fail." He says, "...I have done this." 
My, this man is boasting, is he not? Verse 19, If I've seen any perish for want of clothing, or any poor without covering. And he helped the poor. Job had a poverty program long before anyone else ever had a poverty program. And verse 21, If I've lifted up mine hand against the fatherless when I saw my help in the gate. And he took care of the orphans. Now here he goes over this ground again. This man is boasting of these things that he did. And I take it that he did these things. But he's lifted up with pride. And now that he's in trouble... And he says this, what he's saying is, God is wrong. God is unjust in treating me like he is. And there are a lot of Christians that are saying that today. Oh, my friend, if you and I can get to the place where we can praise his name above everything and see ourselves down in the dust and take our rightful place there. Now, listen to him in verse 29. If I rejoiced at the destruction of him that hated me, or lifted up myself when evil found him. He said, I didn't rejoice when my enemy stumped his toe and had trouble. Verse 32, he says, The stranger did not lodge in the street, but I opened my doors to the traveler. If I covered my transgression as Adam by hiding mine iniquity in my bosom. And he says, Why? I've just been out with it. Well, he's confessed everything except one thing. That's pride. He hasn't confessed it at all. Verse 35, Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me, and that mine adversary had written a book. Surely I'd take it upon my shoulder, bind it as a crown to me. What he's saying is this, I let my enemy write out what he thinks of me, put it around my neck like a necktie and walk up and down the street and say, look, friend, this is what my enemy says about me, and he praises me. I want to tell you, my friend, Job is boasting here. This man is boasting. Now, these three friends give up. Chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. And that, of course, is true. He's righteous in his own eyes, but he's not righteous before God, as we shall see. Now, this all took place before a great crowd that had gathered around the dump heap, because this was an exciting thing for people in that day. Now, the three friends are through. They fade into the distance. And to all intents and purposes, Job is one. But he hasn't won. Now there stands there a man. He's a young man. He hasn't opened his mouth so far, which is unusual for a young man today to keep quiet as long as he did. But this is a very intelligent young man. And now he speaks. He can't withhold himself any longer. His name is Elihu. The name means God himself. And he now is going to speak out. And I tell you, he's going to have a great deal to say. He saw that the friends, they had no answer for Job, and that there were two things. Listen, verse 2. Then was kindled the wrath of Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite of the kindred of Ram. Apparently, he was 
a member of one of the Arab tribes in that day. Against Job was his wrath kindled, because he justified himself rather than God. Now, he justified himself rather than God, which meant he's saying God is wrong. God has made a big mistake in my position. Now, he's going to speak. And also against his three friends was his wrath kennel because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. They hadn't been able to put their finger on the real problem of Job, and yet they were condemning Job. They had not helped him, which is quite obvious. Now Elihu is going to speak. Now, actually, he doesn't have the answer, but he's closer than the others were. And I do think he prepares the way, finally, for God to break in upon this scene. And then we're going to get some information from headquarters that all of us need. And God will break in at that particular juncture. And rightly so, because in all their reasonings, in all their arguments, we find that this man Eliphaz refers to experience. And Bildad, he's a legalist. He comes up with a law. And Zophar, why, he put his on the basis of human authority. And now, none of them had been able to come up with an answer. They had said, of course, many things that were true. I think these three friends had come up with many great truths, but they did not answer Job's problem. And there was a value, I think, in the controversy. And this is important for us to see. It teaches us, I think, very definitely that when two parties join issue, they can never reach an understanding unless there is on the part of one, our own part of both, a brokenness and a submissiveness and willing to be subdued and not contend for self. And my, there's a lot of high-mindedness abroad today outside the church and inside the church, as we've indicated. And that is what, of course, causes a great many of the problems that we have today. And this man here, of course, he's been high-minded, he's been touchy, he's been tenacious, and he's been easily provoked. And Job has been that way, and so is his friend. And they're not going to be able to come to any kind of understanding. And then, again, there was no answer. They had no answer. And I think we ought to say on their behalf that they found no answer. Why? Because of the fact when there is a self-righteous individual, only God can answer that. And we're going to find out God finally did have to break in and answer this man. And anything else, why, the unbroken heart can find a ready reply, but not to God, of course. And we find here that Job's three friends, they had no answer. Elihu finally now breaks in, and he'd waited. He says here in verse 4, Now Elihu had waited till Job had spoken, 
because they were elder than he. And that was apparently a different day than today is, because the young man today would have already broken in, and we find that little Willie has center stage. I've noticed, my, we do it in our family now with a grandson. I tell you, he's center stage up front all the time. We want to listen to him, of course, but I'm not sure that's wise. One man has asked us, do you strike your children? And the man said, no, only in self-defense. That's the only time we strike them. And today, why, we have to listen to little Willie. But now we find here that this man, Elihu, a young man, has waited. And so, verse 5 again, when Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, then his wrath was kindled. And Elihu, the son of Barakel, the Buzzite, answered and said, I'm young, you're very old, wherefore I was afraid, and I durst not show you mine opinion. I said, days should speak, and multitude of years should teach wisdom. And he thought they would come up with something very wise. I can remember when I began preaching as a young preacher, if I saw a gray head out in the congregation and a course, the journey was, I was frightened to death, because I thought, my, they certainly know a great deal. But I soon learned that the gray head didn't necessarily mean wisdom at all. Just because they had length of days did not mean that they had wisdom. But now notice what this young man says here. He says, but there is a spirit in man. And the inspiration of the Almighty giveth them understanding. Now, the very interesting thing here is that he doesn't have the same position that we have today relative to the Holy Spirit. Back in the Old Testament, apparently the Holy Spirit did not indwell believers. He came upon certain men to perform certain functions. Bezalel. The Spirit of God came upon him. He was the one who made the articles of furniture in the tabernacle, the golden lampstand, the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And it required special skill. The Spirit of God came upon him for that. And the Spirit came upon several of the great men. David could pray, Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. He'd come upon David as king. But there is no teaching in the Old Testament that men were indwelt by the Spirit of God. So don't attribute too much to what he's saying here other than this, that he recognizes that only the Spirit and only the inspiration of the Almighty can give understanding. This is a very wonderful thing, and that means simply this, friends, that there's only one sure authority. And that is the Word of God. Great men are not always wise, he says. Neither do the age understand judgment. And here the inspiration of the Almighty gives understanding. He recognized that only God could answer in a case like this. Now, he's preparing the way for God to answer, but he himself does not really have the answer. He just recognizes these other men did not. And now he moves on here. Great men are not always wise. 
neither do the age understand judgment. And that, of course, is true, and it's been demonstrated, I think, in the lives of these men here, that these men are not always wise. Now, will you notice as he moves down now, he says, Therefore I said, Hearken to me, I also will show mine opinion. Behold, I waited for your words. I gave ear to your reasons, while ye searched out what to say. Yea, I attended unto you, and behold, there was none of you that convinced Job or that answered his words. And that, of course, was absolutely true. Lest ye should say, We have found out wisdom, God thrusteth him down, not man. And that disturbed him because he had felt these men ought to be able to answer Job, and they hadn't been able to. And that disturbed him, and it disturbed him because Job now is very self-righteous, you see. He feels like that he stands vindicated in this position that he's in, feels very cocky, very self-confident, you see. And he's been battered and bruised. And by the way, that's what contrite really means. The word for contrite means bruise, and that is something that happened to Job. He'd been in the ring with Satan, and he'd been round after round, and went out with his friends. And this man, Job, has come out bruised. There's no question about that. But he's not contrite yet. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, Thou not despise. That's what David said. And this man Job doesn't have that yet, but he's bruised, and God's not through with him. God is going to move in upon him. And today, only God can answer the self-righteous, the proud, and the arrogant. Only God has an answer for folk like that. Every now and then, someone comes to me and said, I have a son, he's gone to college, and he's learned, he knows everything now. How do I answer him? Well, only God can deal with that boy. And the minute that you and I become self-righteous, you can be sure of one thing, we're apt to go into the ring with God, and you know he's going to bruise us. And that's the way most of us have to be treated. We have to be bruised. And that's what gives a contrite spirit. That's what brings us to the place of humility. My, that spirit that was exhibited, for instance, in the life of John Wesley. It said that Wesley was crossing a narrow bridge one time, and he met an enemy right in the middle of this little narrow bridge, and you couldn't pass. The enemy drew himself up, this fellow did, to his full height, and he says, "'I never give way to an ass.'" And Wesley looked at him for a minute, and he says, Well, I always do. And he just backed off of the little bridge and let the man by. Always felt that was the best answer that could be given in a case like that. But not many men have been willing to back off, you see, Wesley was. And then a real contrite spirit. I think of the confession of Horatius Bonar. He said, I went to God to confess my coldness, my indifference, and my pride. And then he said, after I'd finished, I went back again to God, and I repented of my repentance. 
oh, my friend, that's when you can really get down low, when you're to the place where you can truly repent of your repentance, because it's very easy to be proud of your repentance. Now, well, you notice, and I'll drop down to verse 16. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. And we have here the suggestion that this man, Elihu, could be the author of the book. You notice what he's doing? He's using here, I, in the sense that as if he's writing it. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. I take it that this man could be the author of the book. Verse 17, I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion, for I'm full of matter. The Spirit within me constraineth me. And again, what a tremendous statement this man is making here. This man is saying that the Spirit of God has constrained him. I think that's one of the most wonderful things that he says here. I would like to say more, but I'll not say more. Today, we find that so many of us, we're high-minded, we're touchy, we are tenacious, we're like Job, easily provoked, and we're just as ready as he was to get into this business of vindicating ourselves, and we just don't want anyone to rebuke us at all. There's not that softness of tone or delicacy of touch. There's nothing of that which is tender and soothing. That's not that excellent oil to pour on troubled waters. We are high-minded. It's not that broken heart and weeping eye, and we're not bruised. We're not contrite. And we parade today. Isn't that true of those of us that are fundamentalists? We parade our own experience like Eliphaz. And we indulge in a legal spirit like this fellow Zophar. And then we introduce human authority like Bildad does. And there's none of the spirit and mind of Christ that is there. Oh, my. He says here, the spirit within me constrained me. It helped me back. The scripture says, a soft answer turneth away wrath. And... Most of us, we're just not quite like that. Maybe you are, but I'm probably talking about myself. Verse 21 and 22, and let me read it again. Let me not, I pray you, accept any man's person, neither let me give flattering titles unto man. For I know not to give flattering titles. In so doing, my Maker would soon take me away. I like that. I've never been good myself in the ministry of buttering up other men, especially other ministers, and I try to stay in the realm of truth and not stretch the truth at all. And I do believe that this idea of applauding and exalting other men is a stench in the nostrils of God. It's the important thing that we not attempt to butter up man, not attempt to flatter man. Unfortunately, there are too many Christians that have got their tongues black from licking shoe leather. And I believe if you bow to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
that you won't need to do so much shoe-licking. I think we could eliminate a great deal of that. Now he continues on, because he has the longest discourse of all. And in chapter 33, will you listen to him? He says, Wherefore, Job, I pray thee, hear my speeches, and hearken to all my words. Behold, now I have opened my mouth. My tongue hath spoken in my mouth. He said, I'm going to speak. I'm going to say something here. And he's going to insist on several great truths here. Now listen to him. The Spirit of God hath made me, and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Now, this man Elihu's going to speak by the Spirit of God. He says these other men haven't been able to answer him, and he said he's going to try it now. And you remember Peter put it like this in his epistles. He said, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. I would like to write this up in the chapel of every seminary in this country today. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. You're not speaking for God today as a minister. I do not mean to be brutally abrupt, but I'm going to be. Shut up. You've got no business talking. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. A man came to me up in the San Francisco Bay Area just shortly, and he said to me, My, you sound very dogmatic. I said, Yes, I'm glad that that got through to you, that I'm dogmatic. He said, There are other ways of looking at the Bible. And I discovered that he was a legalist, by the way, felt you should keep the Ten Commandments, and he began to approach it from the other side. He said, have you ever thought that there might be another explanation? Well, yes. I said there was a time when I used to think that probably there were several ways. But I said, the more that I've studied the Word of God, I've come to the conclusion that the way God saves is by grace. And I said, I'm dogmatic about it. I'm dogmatic, I said, about quite a few things that are in the Word of God. And it's because the Word of God is dogmatic. I'm dogmatic about the deity of Jesus Christ. He's the Son of God. I'm dogmatic about the fact that he's virgin-born, performed miracles, died a substitutionary death, rose bodily from the grave, ascended back into heaven, and is seated today at God's right hand, and he's the living Christ right now, and he's coming someday. I said, Brother, I'm dogmatic. And this fellow looked at me, and he said, Then I guess there's no use me talking with you. Well, I said, If you have something else to present, a different viewpoint, you'll be wasting your time, I can assure you. If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Now, there's such thing as dogmatic ignorance, of course. But I'm saying that when you're speaking for God, the Word of God, if you can't be sure of it, then you haven't anything to say at all. Have you ever noticed when this man, Zacharias, before John the Baptist was born, he just couldn't believe it. His wife, Elizabeth, was going to have a son, and he was struck dumb. He had nothing to say till the boy was born. You see, unbelief is always dumb. It hasn't anything to say. Now, that doesn't mean it doesn't talk a whole lot. talks a great deal. Now, any ministry, therefore, is powerless, valueless, and fruitless unless a man is speaking 
as the oracle of God. And I like this man Elihu here, although he doesn't have all the truth. And we find here that he begins now by making it very clear that far as he's concerned, that he's nothing, and that the all-sufficiency is with God, and that actually that was Job's problem. He didn't take the place of nothingness, and that God was all-sufficient. And that's the only way that I think that any man could have an effective ministry. We are teaching today methods instead of meekness. We are teaching gimmicks instead of gospel power. And that is the thing that I believe is needed. Now he says, If thou canst answer me, set thy words in order before me. Stand up. Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. He says, You've been wanting a man to represent you before God. And this young fellow, he was willing to do that. He says, I'm made of the same clay you are. Now, the thing that he is bringing out here, and he has two, I think, elements in his ministry that these others lacked. One was grace, and the other's truth. Remember, it was said that even John the Baptist came according to the law, and that the law came by Moses and those that followed him. But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And this man here who lived so long before the Lord Jesus Christ, he actually had an insight that is amazing, though he did not have a complete understanding at all. Now, the thing that he's emphasizing here is a truth the other man did not emphasize at all, that man must be brought to know himself, to see his true condition, to confess what he really is. And Job needed that. He did not know himself, and he didn't know his friends, and his friends could not give him that knowledge. And that was the difficulty. And, of course, there's absolutely no grace in what they had to say to him. The point was, you're a hypocrite, you're guilty of some awful sin, or it wouldn't happen to you. And God would be unjust if he let it happen to you. And, of course, that was the position Job was going to take, that, my, all this has happened to me, and God had no right to let it happen because God is just. But, you see, you haven't told all the truth, and you haven't brought in the grace of God when you talk like that. It's all legalistic. Now he says, Behold, my terror shall not make thee afraid, neither shall my hand be heavy upon thee. Surely thou hast spoken in mine hearing, and I have heard the voice of thy words saying, I am clean, without transgression, I am innocent, neither is there iniquity with me. And what he's saying here is, first of all, God's right in all that he does. God is right. Spirit of God hath made me. The breath of the Almighty hath given me life. Now, he goes on to say, not only is God right in all he does, God created man. And God is responsible to no one. Listen to him now as he moves down here. He says, he putteth my feet in the stocks, he marketh all my paths. Verse 12, behold, in this thou art not just. I'll answer thee that God is greater than man. God is responsible to no one. 
Verse 13, Why dost thou strive against him? For he giveth not account of any of the matters. Job needs to understand, God didn't have to report back to any board. He is not responsible to any group, and he's not subject to public opinion. God doesn't move like that. Men do. Now, there is a great truth that he is going to emphasize here, and that is that this man Job is saying, I'm clean without transgression. I'm innocent. There's no iniquity in me. And he makes this great statement here. He says, God is greater than man. And that's a simple statement, and yet it's a great statement because so many people take the place of God today. A lot of Christians do, by the way. They propose to tell you why certain things happen. I hear some Christians, it seems to me, that they, at least they feel they've got a private line into heaven. They get the latest, you know, just right off the wire. I doubt that sincerely. I do not believe that at all, that we're not greater than God. There's a great deal we don't know. But there's one great truth. You find it, for instance, in Psalm 11, 5. And that is the whole sense. Now, the argument of this man, Elihu, God trieth the righteous. In Psalm 11, 5, God trieth the righteous. And there's no grace and truth in what these other men had said. But there's grace and truth both in this. God trieth the righteous. God has a purpose back of it all. And he's doing it for a purpose. And this man Job made himself why he is pure. And he's in a position that God has made a big mistake to treat him as he has. In other words, he's greater than God. It's a simple statement. But this is the thing that's in the heart of a great many folk today, not just the atheist, and not just the agnostic, not just the unbeliever, but many believers take that kind of a position. And we need to recognize God is greater than man, and he's not responsible to you, friends. Now, great men, why does God let this happen to me? Well, I guess he'll have to get out a special delivery letter or send you a telegram, let you know. No, he doesn't. You're to trust him, my friend. He's greater than you are. And he moves in truth and in grace. And what God does, God is right in doing this. And he goes on to say here, Why dost thou strive against him? In thirty-three thirteen, He giveth not account of his matters. For God speaketh once, yea, twice, yet man perceiveth it not. How many times does God have to say it to us? in a dream, in a vision of the night. And I still believe it's possible out on the frontier. But God is speaking in his word today, friends. You've got the word of God. Don't trust any dream you've had. God is speaking to you in his word. What does he want to do? That he may withdraw man from his purpose and hide pride from man. And the problem with Job is he had an awful disease. It was bad as cancer. It's the cancer of the spirit, and that is pride. Oh, the proud heart of man today. And my friend, I see it in my life. Do you see it in your life? Oh, how we need to just grovel in the dust today and put on sackcloth and ashes because we're the kind of folk we are. Now, Job's false reasoning 
is to be found, therefore, in just a very simple thing. He did not understand the character of God. And since he didn't, he didn't understand God's dealings with him. But God was dealing with Job, and he wanted to hide pride from him. He's going to take pride out of that man's life. He's a good man. (laughs) He's a great man, Job was. I wouldn't want to take anything from him. But he's a low-down sinner, just like you are and just like I am. And because of that, these little things get into our lives. Oh, they're little things to us, but they're big things, and they're pride. And, you know, we today, we get angry with people and individuals and influences and anybody that dares criticize us find fault. Well, some of you have already tuned me out because you say, I'm not going to let that preacher tell me that I'm low-down sinner and that sort of thing. It's none of his business. And it isn't any of my business, but it's God's business. Now, God trieth the righteous. And he withdraweth not his eyes from them. And we're in his hands, and we're under his eye continually. And we are the objects of his deep and tender and unchanging love. But we're also the subjects of his wise and his moral government. And he doesn't want spoiled brats, my friends. Now, again, will you listen to him in 33.29? Lo, all these things worketh God oftentimes with man, to bring back his soul from the pit, to be enlightened with the light of the living. Mark well, O Job, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, and I'll speak. If thou hast anything to say, answer me. Speak, for I desire to justify thee. If not, hearken unto me, hold thy peace, I'll teach thee wisdom. Now, this is the same thing that God wants to do for believers today. There are things, for instance, you ought to consider Hebrews, the 12th chapter, beginning at verse 3. Let me read that in your hearing here for just a moment. I'm reading Hebrews 12, verse 3. For consider him that endureth such contradiction of sinners against himself, that ye be worried and faint in your minds. You've not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto sons. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. Then he goes on down and says, verse 11, Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yielded the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them who were exercised by it. Now, there are three distinct ways in which we may meet the chastening of our Heavenly Father. We can despise it as though His hand and His voice were not in it. We can ignore God. We can despise it. Or we may faint under it. And when we do that, that's real defeat. Now, Job had done both of these, by the way. But we are to do what? We may be exercised by it, and it'll produce fruit of righteousness in our lives. Now, God does permit trouble to come to his own, and he chastens every son that he receives. So that is the great purpose that is back of what has been happening to this man Job. And God is going to bring it to a tremendous consummation.
Now, as we come today to this 34th chapter of the book of Job, we're listening to the discourse of Elihu. This is the longest discourse that we have in the book of Job. He's not one of the three friends. He apparently was just a spectator or one that was an auditor that was waiting on the sidelines, and he listened to the discourse or the debate between Job and the so-called three friends. And now this man speaks out. And as we saw last time, he advances the discourse a great deal. He had a real spiritual insight. And for a man of that day, he went as far as any man possibly could go. And he certainly defended God in this matter. And up to this point, why the Lord was at a distinct disadvantage because it looked as if the Lord was either punishing Job because of some great sin in his life. And if there was no great sin in the life of Job, then God was unjust. And it looked as if the Lord would have to prove him a great sinner. But God didn't have to do that. The point was that if Job could have only been shown by his friends that God was dealing with him, and God was not dealing with him in the sense of punishing him for some great sin, but that God was using all of these instruments in attempting to take pride out of his life and bring him down low where he could trust God, where he could respond as even little Samuel did. Speak, Lord, thy servant, hear it. Well, Job is so busy defending himself and couldn't see that God was using circumstances. He was using people, the Sabaeans and Satan himself, as means in all of his trials and his losses and his bereavements and his sufferings. But they were all God's marvelous agents in bringing this man to a very gracious and a very wise end. That is, God was doing it all, and God's mercy was being displayed. His mercy endureth forever. And Job lost sight of all of these things, and that removed him from God. And today, we need to recognize that God moves in our lives as believers. And maybe you don't need to learn that lesson. I do. We get occupied with man and with things and circumstances, and we look at them in reference to our lives, and we are not walking with God. We are not walking above our circumstances, but actually under our circumstances. And these circumstances weigh us down. I had a friend in the ministry, a very wonderful man of God, by the way, he went to be with the Lord. And he kidded me, but there was a great deal of truth in it. He said to me, McGee, your trouble is that you live under your circumstances and you don't live on top of your circumstances. Well, that is true, I'm sure, although he was kidding that in my life that I found that to be true. And God permitted me, actually, to have cancer. And I can see a purpose in it now, friends, and I can see a purpose that... God has permitted me to have it right now in my body. 
Don't misunderstand. I'm not being pious and saying, I praise the Lord for it. I do not. I'd get rid of it in the next minute if I could. But the point of it is, God has used this in my life. And I know that. And I recognize that. And when we let these circumstances come between us, you see, God is shut out. And as a result, why we lose the sense of his presence and we lose the fact that he's with us and we get to the place where there is that worry and distress and there's no peace in our soul and we do not feel his fatherly hand upon us and that he's looking after us. And that's when we become fretful and patient and irritable and fault-finding. We get far away from God, and we're out of communion with him. Why? Because of our circumstances, and do not see the hand of God in it all. He wants to bring us back to himself in brokenness of heart and humbleness of mind. And this is the end of the Lord. This is what God is after in your life and my life today. Maybe not yours, but I'm confident in my own life. And this man, Elihu, here is the one that actually closes the ministry so that God himself is going to break in and this man, Job, is going to experience the direct ministry of God and God's going to permit it for a very definite purpose. And we're going to see that the effect was threefold upon him. It changed Job in reference to his relationship to God and to himself and to his friends. And that is the important thing for us to learn today, that we need to be changed in ourselves. God will permit that to happen to us, by the way. And he does permit it to come to us. The Lord chastens us. And this word chasten, as we saw the other day, is a word that the literal of it means to bruise us. And God will bruise us, I tell you. He'll let us be beaten around and beaten up, if you please. God doesn't mind doing that because why? Well, it will cause us to be brought to a place of humbleness, and God uses this in our lives. It's a time of instruction for us. My, how wonderful these things are in our lives, and it's not the easy way by any means. Now in chapter 34, and I'm going to begin reading now. Furthermore, Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, O ye wise men, and give ear unto me, ye that have knowledge. Now it's as it were, he's turning to those three friends, and he has a word for them. He says, For the ear trieth words, as the mouth tasteth meat. They had already said this. You know, just as you taste something, and it's good to the taste buds, well, the ear tastes words, you see, trieth words. And we hear something, music, delightful to the ear. We taste it with our ear. And so that expression is used here now by Elihu. It had been used, I think, by Eliphaz before. He says, let us choose to us judgment. Let us know among ourselves what's good. Now, he says, just as we like to taste something good, let's hear something that's good. 
For Job hath said, I'm righteous, and God hath taken away my judgment. In other words, God hasn't been fair to me. He hasn't given me a trial. Should I lie against my right? My wound is incurable without transgression. He says, I've got an incurable disease, and I didn't do anything. And he continues on, verse 7, What man is like Job, who drinketh up scorning like water? (laughs) You see, the Lord chastens, as we saw last time. The Lord is in the business of chastening those that are his own. And he does it for a very definite purpose. Whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. That is the statement, as we saw last time in the 12th. And we're told then that we are not to despise it. Well, Job was despising the chastening of the Lord. God has no right to do this. And he removed him far from God. And then he began to faint under it, you see. And we are not to faint, we're told, when thou art rebuked of him. God's doing it for a purpose in our lives. Notice verse 8 which goeth in company with the workers of iniquity and walketh with wicked men. Now, to tell the truth, Job has joined the protesters outside of heaven. He's marching up and down with a placard now, and he's saying, God is wrong, and I am right. A lot of folk doing that. And he's joined those that are in rebellion against God. Notice verse 9, "...for he hath said, It profiteth a man nothing." that he should delight himself with God. Well, he said, I was serving God and being a nice little boy, and I expected to have a Sunday school pen given to me, and God didn't give me a Sunday school pen. And at Christmas, he didn't put a nice gift in my stocking. He put ashes in my stocking, and I don't think God was nice doing that. My, I tell you, that was Job. That's a lot of Christians today. He says, Therefore hearken unto me, ye men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should commit iniquity. And again he's saying, God does not do wrong. And Paul, you remember, came to that. Is there unrighteousness with God? God forbid. Now, friend, I don't want to be ugly. My wife says, when you say, when you're preaching, you say sometimes, you don't want to be ugly, then you turn right around and you're ugly. Why do you do that? Well, I'm going to be ugly then. May I say to you here, my friend, if you say God is wrong, then you are wrong. God is always right. And you and I are the ones that are always wrong. God is right. I don't care what God does. God's right in doing it. And he doesn't have to report to you and me. And he doesn't ask our permission, you know. My, there's so many folk today that want criminals turned off and that sort of thing. But believe me, they want God to run the universe right. Well, he'll run it right, friends, but not according to your standard and my standard at all. Now listen to him at verse 12 here. Yea, surely God will not do wickedly, neither will the Almighty pervert judgment. Now, that's something you can write down in your little book. You can keep it there. God does not do wickedly. He'll not commit a wrong act. And if you want to go back in the Old Testament and find fault with him for getting rid of the Amorites, you can do it. That's your privilege. But my friend... 
God was right in what he did. And you say, well, I don't see it. Maybe I don't either. But God is right, friend. Reason from that point. You know, we today, the whole system of human thinking is based on this. We reason from experience to truth. And believe me, that's the reason so few of us ever arrive at truth. But God reasons from truth, and he is the truth. The Lord Jesus said, I'm the truth. Pilate said, what's truth? Well, the truth is standing right before him. Jesus is truth. And the point is to reason from truth to experience. And that's what God does here. And we read here, who hath given him a charge over the earth? Or who hath disposed the whole world? If he set his heart upon man, if he gathered himself, his spirit and his breath. And the whole point is, God has a care and a concern for man. And when you come down now to verse 31, surely it's meet to be said unto God, I have borne chastisement, and I will not offend any more. If he's chastened you, then you ought to learn your lesson and not continue in that way. But maybe God is attempting to develop something in your life, but he won't let it happen to you unless it accomplishes a worthy purpose. Verse 32, "...that which I see not teach thou me." If I've done iniquity, I will do no more. Now, if that's been the purpose, to get you away from sin, then for goodness sakes, learn your lesson and turn from it. Listen to him now in verse 34. He says, "...let men of understanding tell me, and let a wise man hearken unto me. Job hath spoken without knowledge." That was Job's problem. He spoke without knowledge, and his words were without wisdom. Now, that is the problem, I guess, of most of us. We do a lot of talking, and a great deal of talking is without knowledge and without wisdom. We are living in a day when they have what is known as rap sessions, and I meet with a lot of groups today, especially young people, and they want to have a rap session. I don't mind it. I engage in it. In fact, I welcome the opportunity. But you know, I hear a whole lot of asinine things. I hear some very foolish things. And not only did Job speak without knowledge, but there are a lot of folk today speaking without knowledge. And some of them have a Ph.D. degree. But that doesn't mean you have knowledge or wisdom. Verse 36, listen. My desire is that Job may be tried unto the end because of his answers for wicked men. This man, Elihu, says, I hope God... Well, try him until this man here will be able to defend God and not defend himself. 